Hi, it's Chris. Sorry to interrupt before the podcast, but I've got something exciting I want to tell you about, especially if you like these conversations, which, of course, I hope you do. I've launched a free newsletter, and I'd love you to sign up for it at chrisreback.com. What's in the newsletter? Lots of excellent material that doesn't fit into the podcast. Bonus insights, backstories, show notes, key links, and more. I hope you notice I do quite a bit of research for these conversations. The newsletter brings you behind the podcast. For example, in this week's newsletter, you'll get bonus insights from today's guest, Jimmy Carter's chief domestic policy advisor, Stu Eisenstadt, on the 1980 presidential race and how Ted Kennedy saw Carter as a block to the legacy of his fallen brothers, John and Bobby, and in running, derailed the Carter presidency. But wait, there's more. I've always wanted to say that. No Ginsu knives, but for this newsletter kickoff, I have a free gift for three people who sign up. A copy of Eisenstadt's outstanding book, President Carter, The White House Years. Stu runs through it all. Iran, Camp David, the energy crisis, the Malay speech. It's an inside and oftentimes critical look at Carter's job as president. Just go to chrisreback.com to sign up for the free newsletter and get in the running for a copy of the book. That's chrisreback.com to sign up for my new newsletter. Thanks, and now let's get to the podcast. I'm Chris Reback. This is Political Wire Conversations. Forget everything you think you know about President Jimmy Carter and get ready to ask yourself, was he an ineffective, overwhelmed outsider who oversaw four of the worst years in our history? Or, as my guest today argues, was Carter's presidency one of the most consequential in modern history? I confess, I forgot just how much occurred during Carter's four years, and how much of what he did then set the stage for politics and policies today. Ideas like protecting the environment, putting human rights at the center of our foreign policy, energy conservation, the Middle East peace process, and perhaps most painful in today's political ridiculousness, a post-Watergate president who ran for office on the promise that, quote, I'll never lie to the American people. Say what you want about Carter. He kept that promise. But for all the success, Carter's presidency is rarely hailed. He micromanaged. He tried to do too much. He ruined the economy. He oversaw gas lines in America, literally lines of people in cars waiting to fill their gas tanks. Google it. And most terribly, he couldn't free the American hostages from 444 days of captivity in Iran. So how should we consider Jimmy Carter's presidency? Stu Eisenstadt had a front seat to it all. From 1969 to 1981, Eisenstadt worked for peanut farmer, governor, candidate, and President Carter, ultimately as his chief White House domestic policy advisor. Eisenstadt has written an historical take on Carter's four years as president, one that Stu himself says is largely positive, yes, but doesn't shy away from harsh criticism, too. As Stu writes, quote, I'm not nominating Jimmy Carter for a place on Mount Rushmore. He was not a great president, but he was a good and productive one. More on Stu. Before the Carter years, he had worked as a very young man in the LBJ administration. After Carter, he served as U.S. Ambassador to the European Union and then Deputy Secretary of the Treasury under Bill Clinton. He's been a powerful presence internationally and was awarded high civilian honors from the governments of France, the Legion of Honor, Germany, Austria, and Belgium, as well as from Secretary of State Warren Christopher, Secretary of State Madeleine Albright, and Secretary of the Treasury Lawrence Summers. He now heads the international practice at Covington and Burling. 
Stu's exceptional book gives insight and context to every crisis and challenge of the 1970s. We talked about many of them, and most relevant for today, I asked him about how much of what Carter did is being attacked by Trump and Trump's own approach to the presidency. But before I begin the conversation with Stu, I want to remind you about our show sponsor, The Cook Political Report. The special elections roll on. Arizona was the most recent. So what's the latest with the 2018 midterm election map and that blue wave? What about other issues like tariffs, immigration, and guns? People who make it their business to know politics make it their business to subscribe to the Cook Political Report. Just go to cookpolitical.com to sign up. That's cookpolitical.com. Okay, that's it. Here's my conversation with Stu Eisenstadt. Stu, thanks for joining me. I appreciate your time. Chris, thank you for having me. Uh, so let's start with your headline, which I imagine will make some folks curious and uh, may even make others shake their heads. But he here we go. You write that Jimmy Carter's presidency was one of the most consequential in modern history. Why do you say that? You know, his political idol, Chris, was Harry Truman, and he placed Truman's favorite slogan on his desk, the buck stops here. Both left the White House as widely unpopular presidents. But Truman is now recognized more for his achievements than his faults, and I hope my book will contribute to a similar reassessment of Carter as president, not just as the most admired former president. And the reason I say that is that I do not ignore, and I think the credibility of the book is based on the fact that I do not ignore the very real problems we had, which we can discuss shortly. But those have obscured the enormous successes, both domestic and foreign, and let me very briefly summarize them. Yes, please. He laid the foundation of the energy security that we enjoy today by three major energy bills in four years, which deregulated the price of natural gas and crude oil and therefore encouraged maximum production. He placed conservation at the center of the nation's agenda for the first time on energy, and he ushered in the new era of clean energy with solar and wind power. He was a great consumer champion. He appointed uh, consumer advocates, not industry stalwarts, to regulate industries and gave them a charge, which he backed up with legislation, and that was to transform our whole transportation system. He deregulated trucking, railroads, and airlines, and really brought air travel to the middle class allowed competition for prices and new entrants like Southwest and JetBlue, which might not exist as we know them today. And he began the deregulation of telecommunications, ushering in the cable era of banking and, and even, Chris, of beer, uh, reversing prohibition era regulations, which had blocked the flow of local craft beers. Mm. He was the greatest environmental president since Theodore Roosevelt, doubling the size of the national park system through the Alaska Lands Bill in a very, very tough uh, fight. He followed through on his uh, post-Watergate pledge for good government with major ethics legislation requiring disclosure of assets and employment going into office, limiting gifts while you're in office, limiting the revolving door after you leave. He and, and the uh, area of good, governments, good government uh, passed the Inspector General Law, which put Inspector General to root out fraud, waste, and abuse in every agency. Those still very much exist. And in addition, 
He uh, had merit uh, appointments for all judges. He created the Office of Special Counsel to investigate wrongdoing, passed the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. All of these brought a whole freshness and ethics to government. On uh, He and Mondale created the modern vice presidency out of an institution which was held in complete disrepute. He brought Mondale into all meetings, access to all secret documents, and importantly, for the first time, brought the vice president's office into the West Wing, just steps away from the Oval Office. And even on inflation, which rightly people associate with him as a negative, after trying everything possible and having inflation go into the stratosphere from the second oil shock of the 1970s, Nixon had the same problems. Yeah. Uh, he appointed Paul Volcker knowing, because Volcker told him, that he was going to choke the economy, squeeze inflation out, and that would mean higher unemployment, higher interest rates in the middle of a re-election campaign. But he told all of us, he said, look, I'm going to do this regardless of my uh, election consequences because I don't want my legacy in this area to be permanent uh, high inflation. And unfortunately, the lower inflation didn't come till he left office. It benefited Reagan and the nation today. And in foreign policy, his accomplishments were also stunning. The Camp David Accords and the Egypt-Israel uh, Peace Treaty remain at 40 years. Hence, the centerpiece of Israel's security, the first peace treaty between Israel and its Arab neighbor. He applied human rights as a centerpiece of his foreign policy, applying it to both military dictators in Latin America and to the Soviet Union, reaching out to the Soviet Jewish movement, reaching out to the democratic dissident movement of uh, Sakharov, saving Sharansky's life by saying he wasn't a spy in the middle of his trial, yeah. passing the Panama Canal Treaty, which was one of the bloodiest fights we had, Chris, and led to a new era in U.S.-Latin American relations. It was he, not Nixon and Kissinger, who actually normalized relations and took on with China and took on the Taiwan lobby. So all of these are enormously important, and they've all been obscured by the problems he had. It's an incredible list. And yes, I, I you know, one of my first questions that I have written down for you is um, I was just so struck by how much happened. I mean, you, you captured, you know, in the four years of the presidency. And of course, your book uh, covers even more than that, including your first meetings with Carter back in 1969 when uh, he was, I guess, uh, thinking about uh, his first run for governor. And, and I, I would love to, to ask you about that as well. But I, I was so, so much happened. And, and so, yes, you just outlined it and, and outlined, you know, all of those things in, in terms of accomplishments. To what extent? And by the way, the book is yeah. not just a dry recitation of these. It's got anecdotes <laughs> and stories about how it happened, humorous stories. Uh, I well, profile uh, people uh, in, a, in a very real way. They could come out of a Shakespearean play from from villainous to heroic. Well, you don't you don't need to tell me. I, I read the book. I mean, just wait. I'm I'm going to ask you about the John Denver meeting. I mean, you know, <laughs> you're 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 out. You know, when you meet John Denver in uh, in the 1970s. Uh, you know, that's a, that's a pretty well, good... Well, I, I felt like, as we say in the South, I was really high cotton. I knew I had made it <laughs> when John Denver came in to talk about solar energy. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, he came in, he was uh, selling you on uh, him and Robert Redford that they would go and uh, help you help you sell that uh, solar energy. No, no, I, I look at... I, I, I know the book um, has incredible 
um, tales. It brings you, and it's why. It, look, it's it's not a it's not a light book. It, you cover you cover the territory, which also made me think. So much happened, and Carter and you and the team tackled so much. Um, those were, and you just outlined the wins. Did that contribute? to the problems? Did that contribute to, was there so much going on? Did that contribute to what you would characterize as Carter's weaknesses or what you characterize as his weaknesses were there? They are part of him. And whether he had one thing on his plate or 25 on his plate, they would have come out. Well, that's a very good question. I mean, one of the things as I reflect in the book is that Carter did not have a chief of staff at the beginning, which was a huge mistake, to try to create a greater sense of priorities. And he threw so much at the Congress and at the American people, major energy bill, welfare reform, tax reform, Panama, uh, you know, stimulus packages, all at the same time. So when we got these back, and we, we often got much more than 50%, it always paled in comparison to what we had asked for. And it muddled the sort of image because we were throwing so much up at the same time. This was a very real problem. And uh, and I think it resulted in part from not having a chief of staff who could have created more order and not having, by the way, a more experienced White House staff who could have said, look, you're trying too much. Congress can't digest this all. Let's take it one at a time, get these done, build momentum, and go on from there. So but go Deeper on that point, though, if for, for me, if you would, because it's not a question of discipline. I mean, Carter, and you go through, you you talk about uh, you know his time in the Navy, and and you talk about the way that that uh, you know his that the head of the nuclear submarines, you know that Rick, Rick Hoff, is that uh, do I have his Rick, name? Rickover, Rick, Rickover, Rickover. Um, you know how how he connected with um, Jimmy Carter and saw the, you know the the. The, the potential in uh, you know Jimmy Carter when he was in the Navy. So there's there's no question. It's not a question of discipline. I wouldn't think with with Jimmy Carter. He ran you know he ran his family farm, and yet it, you just outline putting forth so many different things, not having uh, you know the the chief of staff at a time when you know many folks I think at the time thought that uh, that'd be Jack Watson or you know later it became Hamilton Jordan, you know not putting up so many. Why didn't he overcome those? Was there a, is, is there is it a self awareness? What 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 was the why behind what drove those those problems? I mean, he brought with him the fact that in Georgia, when he was governor, the legislature Chris meets only forty days. You have to get everything done quickly if yeah. anything's going to be done, and didn't sort of transfer his thinking into a very different Washington reality, and that's why he needed. To have, as Reagan did when he came in and brought in Jim Baker as chief of staff, he didn't have the kind of experienced staff initially that could have helped him sort things out. So he was very disciplined when it came to individual decisions, reading reams of material, if anything, he was blamed for being too immersed in detail, although when one looks at how people are making decisions now, by three by five cards or tweets, that's not so bad, but so he was disciplined with individual decisions, but it was making the connection of dots. If I take on the water projects at the beginning, which he did, which angered a lot of the Southern Democrats, is this going to impact as it did on my getting my energy bill done? 
It's making those kinds of connections that require a political sophistication of Washington that didn't exist. They're also, Chris, I think it's very important that you know, and I think you're sophisticated listeners. Let's look at the era in which he governed in the 1970s, because it was a period of epic change. The whole centrist political consensus of the post-World War II era had begun to unravel under the pressures of the loss in Vietnam, urban violence, and persistent high inflation. We didn't invent inflation. It was high throughout the Nixon and Ford administrations as well. Yeah. There was the rise in this one short decade, and particularly during Carter's period, of the consumer movement, the environmental movement, the black power movement, the women's rights movement, the pro-life movement after Roe v. Wade, the ascendancy of the conservative evangelical movement led by Jerry Falwell, who contended that Carter, the most religious president in modern times, was not a real Baptist and was harboring homosexuals on his staff. And Reagan was able to bring together in 1980 Nixon's so-called silent majority of sort of frustrated blue-collar workers and tether it to these evangelicals to form a coalition that powers the Trump base even today. Do you remember your first meeting with him, 1969? I do. What stands out? Uh, I had just come back from uh, working for Lyndon Johnson in the White House after I graduated from Harvard Law School and then working as the research director for Hubert Humphrey's presidential campaign. And after he lost Nixon in 68, I went back to Atlanta, where I grew up, and I went and made a beeline to the office of former Governor Carl Sanders, who was going to be running for election again under Georgia law. You couldn't have consecutive terms. He was the odds-on favorite, Chris. He had been a moderate governor. He had tremendous amounts of financial backing. And I saw him in his very sumptuous law office, told him I was a hometown boy, had been all-American at Quay High School, uh, Phi Beta Kappa at UNC, Harvard Law School, worked in the White House, et cetera, et cetera. And he was only mildly interested. He had such support already. So a friend of mine from high school, Henry Bauer Jr., kept talking to me about Jimmy Carter. And he had run in 66 when I was in law school and lo lost his governor, but he had attracted a lot of support. And he pestered me to such an extent that I met him in the old Hurt Building across from the federal courthouse where I was clerking for a uh, federal judge. And we met Chris in a bare-bones office that was a stark contrast from the sumptuous law office of Carl Sanders. It had a folding chair, a folding table, and two uh, steel folding chairs. But what impressed me was the following. Here was a very handsome, articulate person from southwest Georgia, a tiny hamlet, but he understood, Chris, urban problems. And there historically in, in Georgia was a great divide between the rural part of the state and Atlanta. He supported mass transit. He supported education. And importantly for me, he had a very strong commitment to civil rights. And indeed, one of the things that propelled him to the nation's attention was when he gave his inaugural speech as governor and said the time for discrimination is over. He put Martin Luther King's uh, painting in the Capitol uh, in uh, Atlanta. Yeah. So these were things that, but, but initially when we had that first meeting, I was impressed, but I still, you know, I had committed to Sanders. He, he called me up. He said, I want to see you again. I really need you. And he told me he wanted me to head his policy uh, shop for the campaign. And I knew then that I was hooked. 
he simply was so much of a fresh face, so articulate. I called Sanders and explained that I couldn't work for him. I'm sure he didn't give it a second's thought. <laughs> and in terms of my relationship with Carter, the rest is history. I became his policy director as governor, his policy director in the 76 campaign, and his domestic uh, advisor in the White House, but not just a domestic advisor. I was involved in a whole raft of foreign policy issues, the Middle East, uh, dealings with the Soviet Union and China, sanctions, policies, and the like. When you were talking earlier about the the list of things that Carter attacked and, and accomplished, you know, one of them, the, the, a lot of it had to do with modernization, was, was one of the themes that, that I took away, modernizing a view of the environment, modernizing um, our take on the on energy. And yes, as you point out, many of the, his reforms and uh, conservation and the things that he, he advocated, um, we're reaping benefits from those today. Modernizing the role of the vice president, you know, reading what, you know, how you describe Mondale's role, you know, any of us who have read uh, Caro's books and see how um, LBJ, for example, was handled uh, or, you know, under Kennedy, that was a total change what what carter did with the vice or, president. or how johnson handled humphrey yeah well you know it uh, you know when once you've been hazed yourself i guess you you know you pass on pass on the hazing but but absolutely and yes you you worked i guess you saw that firsthand were you you were on humphrey's staff is that uh, no what? i was on lbj's staff, LB, yeah. but but uh, but my office was directly next to humphrey's vice presidential office then in, in the executive office building it was carter who moved the vice president's office into the West Wing. Okay. So I knew all of Humphrey's staff. I heard all of their stories. I mean, stories, Chris, like uh, that uh, Humphrey, the vice president of the United States, sometimes spent 30 minutes outside of Joe Califano's office, LBJ's domestic advisor, who yeah. was sort of my predecessor, waiting to go see him. I mean, you know, the vice president was treated in a very backhand fashion. But I think the modernization is a good point, and he modernized totally our transportation system. Yeah. The efficiency that we have today is due to the efforts he did with trucking and rail and airlines, uh, let alone telecommunications. And, and, and what I'm not and, sure that many people realize is that he modernized the political campaign. In in 76, the nomination process for the Democratic candidate really moved and and I you know this is, I guess was post Watergate you know one of the post Watergate um phenomena but moved to a true nomination system and it was his been he he made you wrote he made 110 trips to Iowa in the two years prior to uh the opening of the campaign prior to the caucus That's a very good point I mean up to that point in both parties the nominees were largely selected by party bosses in closed caucuses because of the so-called McGovern rules, Carter understood and his brilliant campaign manager and later finally chief of staff, Ham Jordan, understood that this was a whole new ball game, that party bosses were not going to control the nomination. If they had, Carter would never have been nominated. He also realized that Iowa, which is after all only a caucus, not a primary, with uh, you know, 10,000, 15,000 people voting in all, was going to have a disproportionate impact on who got the nomination. If he could be there first and often and get a boost, then it would make a big difference. And so he did pay 110 visits. His wife paid almost as many. His family did. And what was interesting is when the election results occurred through the caucuses, Carter was the winner over Mo Udall and uh, and uh, Birch Bayh. But you know what his percent, when his percentage was? He got 27%. Yeah. 
Yeah. 60% were undecided, and yet the headlines were Carter wins Iowa. That propelled us into New Hampshire, and the rest again is history. So let's go through, if we could, um, some of the points that anyone, even from today, anyone who might have been born in the years since Jimmy Carter would, would surely know about and, and would want to hear about from you. Um, I think first, obviously, has to be um, – well, Well, there's Iran, there's Camp David, and then I'd also like to understand a little bit about the, the crisis of confidence speech, the Malay speech, which you outline, and, and some of the ties then to politics today and, and Pat Cadell and, and all of that were just phenomenal. And, and there's so many connections between what you talk about, um, what occurred, and, and Jimmy Carter you know, presenting himself as uh, you know, really a more conservative – Democrat and and so, so much of that and almost populism resonates today, but let, let, let's start with um, Iran. Uh, wh- what is your take? Um, was there anything you know with the, with the benefit of hindsight? Did President Carter do absolutely everything that he could? Is there something, anything that maybe in your conversations with him, anything that could have been done differently? Um, wh- what's your take on Iran? Yes, I'm very critical, frankly, of the handling of Iran. Um, And let me take it from the start. The CIA in 1953 had put the Shah back on his throne, sort of overturning a democratic election there. Six presidents had given tens of billions of dollars of our most sophisticated military arms to the Shah. He was our bulwark in the region. But the intelligence failure in Iran was massive. And Stan Turner, who headed the CIA, told me in an interview that he felt he had let the president down. So let's look at those intelligence failures. The CIA did not know that the Shah's domestic support rested on quicksand, that it had eroded completely. They did not know that the Shah, for five years, Chris, had been getting cancer treatment for a deadly form of cancer. They did not know that Ayatollah Khomeini, an exile outside of Paris, was sending provocative radical cassettes back to Tehran to stir up opposition to the Shah and undo him. I mean, this is just an unforgivable intelligence lapse. Number two, once the hostages were taken, Carter made two fundamental decisions, both of which I disagreed with. Decision number one was to tell the hostage families that his number one priority was getting them back safe and healthy. Well, that's an understandable impetus, but that tied his hands, Chris, for taking more firm action militarily Hmm. that's big and I both recommended, like, for example, mining the harbors uh, outside of uh, Iran's Karg Island or blockading them to prevent oil from going out, which was their only source of revenue. Um, yes, it would have risked, to some extent, the lives of the hostages, but I think in the end, if we showed that determination, they might have released them. The second seminal decision was to hold himself up in the White House to show that he was working full-time on this. Well, all that did is cause even more press attention and more public attention. Instead of going about his work and saying, yes, of course this is important, but I'm not going to let it haunt me, he, Chris, became a hostage himself in the White House. And if we look at the press, you're part of it, uh, 
cause of the hostage crisis. Walter Cronkite from CBS uh, TV would sign off every evening broadcast by giving the number of the day of the hostage crisis. And then, of course, the abortive and disastrous rescue effort in the desert of Iran in which helicopters collided. Uh, it was uh, yeah. Operation not because Sands. of Carter. Yeah. Yes, it certainly wasn't his personal fault. But the fact is, it was seen as a metaphor for the failures of the administration. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. No, I, and uh, uh, it was. And then, of course, they uh, they ended up getting released, uh, you know, the day that uh, Carter left office and Reagan took over. Yes. And, 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 and I would say to, to his credit, you know, we talked about his accomplishments. We suffered a massive election rejection. But if you look at the actual polls, up until the last weekend, we had pulled even and some actually ahead. And then he made a fateful decision. He was in Chicago. I was with him campaigning for the last weekend. I got a call at 3 a.m. from the White House operator. The president wants to leave in 45 minutes. We had gotten a new offer back from Iran on the hostages. And I urged everyone not to leave the campaign trail. Look at the offer from there. It turned out to be a step forward, but certainly not enough. So it it just reminded everybody of what was his worst problem. Uh, and the polls then immediately just slid. But interestingly, although we then lost in a landslide, he had what by any fair measure was the most productive post-election transition out. It was in that period, that two and a half months before Reagan came in, that the final negotiations were done on Alaska land as a lame duck, that the final negotiations were done and signed for the Superfund bill to clean up chemical waste, yeah. that the final negotiations were concluded for the hostages. And it was during that time, in a, what seemed at the time sort of humorous incident, in which Senator Kennedy called me and said, we've got a vacancy on the First Circuit. I'd like President Carter to nominate Steve Breyer from my staff who helped on airline deregulation in Harvard Law School. And I said, Senator, uh, I know Steve. He would be terrific. But the president has no love loss towards you. He thinks that your race against him really helped undermine and divide the party. And he said, I know that's why I'm calling you. So I went in to see <laughs> Carter with a, my notebook of all the reasons we should uh, support. And I said, forget who asked this. There's a vacancy on the First Circuit. You know Steve helped us on airline deregulation. You know how brilliant it is as a professor at Harvard Law School. And I didn't think I had a chance of getting it done. He said, I'll do it. It'll be a tribute to our administration and to the judiciary. And that was an essential first step of Steve Breyer's ascension to the Supreme Court. So all of these occurred, Chris, after he was defeated as a lame duck with an incoming Republican Senate awaiting him. Yeah, that it was. It's a remarkable amount of uh, things that got done in in that period. I, I want to ask you about Camp David, but qu quickly on the campaign, which you just mentioned. When Reagan asked, "Are you asked Americans, are you better off now than you were four years ago?" How did you answer that? How did you answer that for yourself? How did you answer that for the American people? Well, first of all, as I lay out in the in the book, and and Jim Baker, who was his campaign manager later, Secretary of State and uh, Reagan's chief of staff and secretary of the treasury, they stole our debate book. Mm -hmm. They had our debate book. Jim Baker told me flat out 
that Bill Casey, the head of the Reagan campaign, plopped it down about 10 days before the, uh, the debate. So they knew all of our attack lines, and they rejoined it very effectively. And the problem was, Reagan's question was right to the heart of our problem, because it was in the midst of the high inflation. We had not yet had the benefit of Paul Volcker's tough medicine. Uh, growth had slowed again because of his tight monetary policy. So when he asked that question, it was very difficult. I recited all the positives that uh, I've just given you, but it's very difficult in one breath to give a, a, the kind of answer that would assure people. So in many ways, the campaign against Reagan was run on the fear of Reagan as the unknown and you know the cowboy out of the West and so forth. And uh, that had actually had a positive impact on the electorate until that disastrous last weekend when he came back from Iran to deal with the Iran crisis. Yes, we came back. I think you guys were in Chicago, if I'm not mistaken. We were in Chicago. Yeah. Um, Camp David, uh, obviously one of the uh, one of the highlights and and in all sorts of personal ways, very significant uh, for you and a lot of the issues that uh, you know, you've been personally involved in, your family's been involved in uh, for the last 40, 50 years. Um, tell me about that. Uh, what, what was that like? Camp David was, I think, the most significant personal diplomatic effort ever performed by an American president. It brought the first peace between Israel and one of its Arab neighbors, and at that, Chris, its most powerful Arab neighbor, with whom there had been five wars since Israel's creation. He did it by pouring over intelligence reports on Begin and Sadat, trying to understand them. He had personal touches, like taking them to Gettysburg battlefield to remind them of the costs of war. He barred the press to block outside pressures from their home constituencies. But interestingly, Chris, Sadat and Begin almost never met in the same room. They were like two scorpions. So Carter had to negotiate separately with them and with their staffs through 13 agonizing days and nights and more than 20 drafts that he personally wrote of uh, an outline for peace. It was really an exhausting effort. But the last Sunday, the 13th day, when everybody decided if there was going to be no agreement, everybody was going home, yeah. he had still fallen short because Begin said, I can't make any further concessions. I have my bag, bag packed and I'm ready to return. And this was not a bluff. The cars were already ready to take him back to Washington, Camp David. Carter saved the day with a really novel personal touch, knowing because of studying the intelligence reports of his love of his eight grandchildren. Carter personally signed photographs individually to each one of himself, Begin, and Sadat, mm. and then walked them over to Begin's cabin at Camp David, handed it to him, and then, as he described to me, saw Begin's lips quiver, his eyes tear. Begin put his bags down and said, Mr. President, I'll make one last try, and the rest is history. That treaty remains in effect. It's never been violated. It's central to Israel's security and to America's national interest in the Middle East. A remarkable time, and, and your telling of that in the book is extraordinary. It brings me to today, and just to close out, Carter's legacy, and how do you define it in relevant directly to today? 
how do you see it being impacted and maybe being put, you know, putting this just as directly as possible? Do you feel in any ways that Trump is destroying it? I mean, we often think of, of Trump going after Obama's legacy. But in your book, go through the things that you, and you went through it at the top of this call, Carter's legacy of human rights at the center of our foreign policy, of environmental action, particularly what Carter did around national parks, um, race relations, which we really didn't even get to talk about in this conversation, but you talked about a little bit with uh, Carter's uh, speech when he became governor. Yeah, you know, he, he appointed more African-Americans and more women to judgeships and senior positions in the administration, Chris, than all 38 presidents put together before him. Well, it was extraordinary. You outlined, uh, you know, you you outlined in the book uh, his his relationship, friendship with uh, the the first uh, black midshipman to graduate, uh, Wesley Brown. You know, not joining those racist business groups in in Plains. The you know the, his vote at Plains Baptist Church to admit blacks. I mean, you you go through. There's so much in the book where you document. Yes, you just you mentioned that fact, but but through his history. Um, you know, his history on, on race relations. But those aspects of uh, – and, and the the other legacy of Carter that I felt in reading your book and, you know, rings – you know, really rings in today's times, um, his famous line to the American people, I will never lie to you. When How are you viewing Carter's legacy and, and what's your sentiment towards what you see happening today and, and do you see a dismantling of some of Carter's legacy? Well, clearly, I've been working on this book on and off for 40 years with 5,000 pages of contemporary notes and 350 interviews and so forth. I didn't write it as an anti-Trump piece, but I think the contrast in so many areas uh, is really strong. I mean, Carter behaved like a president. He respected the office and the institutions, the Justice Department, the FBI. He made government uh, reach a higher ethical level. Many of those are still in effect, the inspectors general, the ethics laws, and so forth. Uh, but I think really it was valuing the presidency as a place for the highest values of the country, for treating all our citizens equally, for human rights abroad, for projecting democracy and peace abroad. Uh, I mean, when I travel, and I travel very widely in the Clinton administration, I was uh, ambassador to EU and undersecretary of state, deputy treasury secretary, and so forth. I mean, the country is viewed in remarkable ways, uh, not like it was before. So I, I think that the contrast is, is very much there, um, and I, I hope we can get back to some of the same values. Now, that is not to say... He was a perfect president. Again, I'm very, very blunt on saying that his major problems were inflation, Iran, the inexperience uh, that he brought to Washington and that of his Georgia mafia, the inter-party warfare with Kennedy. Uh, I don't whitewash any of these. What I'm trying to do in this book is present an overall view that puts the successes and the lasting accomplishments into the context that have not been obscured by some of the problem. Stu, thank you. Thank you for your time. Uh, thank you for uh, the book that you wrote, and um, most obviously for your service, years of service to, uh, to our country. Thank you on all fronts. Thank you. That was my conversation with Stu Eisenstadt. Want more from Stu? A reminder to sign up for my new free newsletter at chrisreback.com. It has bonus insights from Stu, plus sign up and you'll get a chance to win a copy of Eisenstadt's book. My thanks to Stu for the conversation and you for listening. 
I'm Chris Reback. I'll talk with you soon. Mm-hmm.